Hello, this is Dr. Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. We have the pleasure of recording today from the 43rd Annual Congress of the Society of Critical Care Medicine in San Francisco, California. Today, I'll be speaking with Ira Chaifetz, MD, FCCM, who is Division Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at Duke University Medical Center. He spoke here in San Francisco regarding early mobilization in the pediatric intensive care unit. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Seifetz. I think for, for many of us in, in the adult world and are fairly more and more familiar with early mobility in the ICU, and I thought it would be interesting to hear a different perspective, for, I think probably more for much of the listenership as well, regarding early mobility in pediatrics. And I imagine there are similarities, but I imagine there are a fair amount of differences as well. Right. So in pediatrics, the idea of early mobility is just starting to you know, get some interest and some hold. I know in the adult world, it's been going on for at least a handful of years. The concern in pediatrics has always been the loss of the endotracheal tube. Up until very recently, the vast majority of pediatric endotracheal tubes are uncuffed, a little less secure. And also in our infants and smaller patients, the distance between an endotracheal tube remaining in the trachea and becoming inadvertently dislodged is quite small. So we end up with, with really two concerns that, that are very much related. One is for the younger children, the ones that you can't talk with, you can't relate with, can't understand what you're doing. You can't tell them to not pull at their endotracheal tube. You can't tell them to not remove their tube because a child you know, intrinsically wants to get up, wants to move, wants to be active, wants to be held, and losing endotracheal tubes are a real concern. So traditionally, we've kept our children sedated and probably more sedated than we need to be. Part two of that is when, if we get to the point of walking patients with endotracheal tubes, even if they're cooperative, again, you know, short of our adult or near adult sized teenagers, the concern remains the loss of the endotracheal tube. Is there a greater incidence of lost endotracheal tubes in the pediatric population than the adult do you know? Or? I don't know, honestly. I, I don't know the comparative data. Uh, we don't lose a lot of you know, there's not many uh, inadvertent extubations, but again, we're not having our children, many of our children, up until very right. recently, walking around ICUs with endotracheal tubes. You know, very recently, there's been some change in that thought process, and there's an excellent presentation on the pre-courses here looking at whether or not loss of an endotracheal tube should be a never event or not. And it was, it was a very good discussion. Obviously, there's no answer, but the general consensus amongst those discussing was that it probably should not be should not be a never event because if you never inadvertently lose an endotracheal tube, you're probably keeping too many patients too sedated for too long. Yeah, I always think, I guess, if if you get the tube out early enough, then they shouldn't be removing on their own. (laughs) Well, exactly. I'm glad you prompted me because that was the other part was that when you look at the data, um, and I can't quote it here because, but it was a pretty high percent of patients, at least pediatric patients, I believe it's the same in the adult world, who are inadvertently extubated remain extubated. Right. Meaning the patient probably in those situations knew better than the, the right. care team. Yeah, that's uh, we've been pretty aggressively tracking it in our ICU over the last year or two, and it's at least 50% that, that stay extubated. It's a good portion of patients, at least in our, in our unit, that remove the endotracheal tube during a trial of uh, a spontaneous exactly. breathing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, again, I can't quote the exact data, but in that it was about 40, between 40 to 60 percent. I can't remember which one it was. It's about 50, about 50 right, yeah. is about right. Yeah. So you had mentioned the population that you've 
and more so moving forward with progressive mobility of the, the patients on ECMO? Is that right. so, so the biggest change that, that we've had in our ICU, uh, we are now considering and talking about uh, walking our adolescents, our larger size patients, especially those who are cooperative with endotracheal tubes. We are keeping our patients in general more awake and learning that if you can keep them more awake and get through that period of delirium, they actually do better and you can be more cooperative. But the real area of focus, is, as you just asked, in our ICU has actually been ECMO. We've now walked, I think it's we're up to 13 ECMO patients, all uh, older pediatric patients and young adults, and it's been quite successful. So this program started about three and a half, almost four years ago now, where we had a young woman, a 16-year-old, with end-stage cystic fibrosis who had been on the ventilator at another institution for about four days, and then was transferred to us for a lung transplant evaluation. Duke is a very aggressive and big, one of the largest in the country, lung transplant programs, but they're pretty strict on a criteria that if you're on a ventilator, you must be ambulatory or at least actively involved in physical rehabilitation within seven days, or they will not transplant because of the published data that the risk of mortality is about 50% of those patients who are ventilated and immobile pre-transplant. So we had this young woman in our in, uh, transplant team suggested, and, and to this day I don't know whether Dave Zoss has directed our transplant program, did it seriously or, or not, but challenged us to put her on ECMO and walk her on ECMO. And after we all said that was the most insane thing we've ever heard, we did it. <laughs> With informed consent of the family, of mm. course. And this young woman was cannulated for venal venous ECMO uh, through a double lumen IJ uh, cannula. Uh, we secured the airway through tracheostomy just to have a secure airway. I woke her up and walked her. And she went on to be transplanted and discharged. And so now uh, we've had a series of 13 similar patients who we've had uh, ambulatory on ECMO, um, all successful to transplant and discharge. Some of the patients are obviously pretty recently transplanted and discharged, so we don't have uh, reliable long-term outcome data, but we're 100% um, to discharge. Mm. And it really has revolutionized the whole mindset of ECMO management and ventilator management because if you can walk an ECMO patient, why can't you have a ventilated patient be awake and cooperative, obviously, especially the older children and adolescents. So it's just that mindset of what you can do has changed the culture of our entire critical care program. So the the real impetus was the criteria for transplantation. Right. And so far, so all the third, I believe it's 13, uh, that that we've walked in ECMO have all been pre transplant. So the question that came up after we had done about eight or nine bridge to transplant ECMO, so the first eight or nine of our patients were patients that were cannulated with end-stage lung disease with the intent of transplantation. All of them had uh, cystic fibrosis or other chronic lung conditions. We were faced with a 16-year-old teenager young woman who had severe ARDS of unclear infectious etiology, and after a month on ECMO, she uh, was no better and probably was worse. And on a CT scan, um, had minimal to no lung. So she was the first patient, and the question we had asked all along is, can you wake up and walk an ARDS patient on ECMO because of the intrinsic differences of all the other patients had with chronic lung disease had, sad but true, grown accustomed just through their life of living and walking being dys- dyspneic. Mm-hmm. It was just a, they, their brain, their mind knew that they weren't suffocating, they were tachypneic, they had struggled to breathe, but 
they were breathing. When you have someone who was normal with healthy lungs her entire life, as soon as we woke her up, the anxiety, uh, the dyspnea, the, the air hunger that she sensed, although she was clearly well ventilated on ECMO in terms of gas exchange, was tremendous. But it took about a little over a week to really, it comes down to just basic TLC, nursing care, family care, talking to her, convincing this young woman that she was okay. I mean, big sense, ECMO, okay, but, but could breathe and, 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 and get through that panic, anxiety, that she was able to ambulate, uh, rehabbed after lying in bed for a month, basically not moving. And she went on to get her transplant, go home, and she's back to being a competitive swimmer. So, wow. pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, the next steps are to do the same process to ambulate these patients who are not bridged to transplants, who are bridged to recovery. But we hadn't done that yet simply because we weren't sure about the, the kidney or the air hunger or the fear. But having done it in, in a patient, we, we had no choice. We, we had to try it because the alternative on, on the end mm-hmm. I just described was withdrawal of support. Now that we've, we've learned and we've figured out how to do this, and this was pretty recent, just you know, uh, six months ago, uh, the next appropriate candidate who's an ECMO to bridge to recovery, who is an older patient, older pediatric patient, um, I believe we will go down the same path. Mm-hmm. Most of our patients recently have been younger children. What type of age ranges? So because we've been limiting this to the post-transplant population, our center only does adolescents and adults. So we're going down to the youngest that we can transplant is 14. I do know off of our experience, having talked to other centers and other people around the country, that there are other centers that have now woken up and I don't know how much have to ambulate, but at least standing at bedsides and, and physically rehabbing. I believe the youngest I've heard is eight years. And I don't see any reason why you can't go down to whatever age you feel. And it depends on the child and the development of the child, sure. uh, that the child would be cooperative because, of course, one error, one inadvertent decannulation can greatly not only, of course, hurt that patient, but damage a program. Forgive me if it's, it's, just, it's just not my, my world. Late or non-recovering ARDS, is that an unusual uh, indication for transplantation, or is that...? It's rare, but uh, there's some. You know, it, this situation, you know, I have we faced this situation where we have had unfortunate patients who could not survive ECMO or sorry, did not recover lungs and eventually succumbed, absolutely. The difference is, you know, years passed. Once you got out four weeks, you know, the, the mindset was wait longer, go six weeks. But your risk of complications really starts rising, infectious complications, bleeding complications. And often, unfortunately, it was a devastating complication. So in this situation, it was really trying to find that right time frame where the team was convinced that recovery uh, of this young woman's lungs was highly unlikely to, almost certainly not going to happen, but prior to the point that we had an irrecoverable complication. So there is some, I think we're going to see it more and more, honestly. Yeah. I think I think this situation is probably going to happen more and more. You know, those, for example, this young woman, Allie, if she didn't go to transplant, she probably would have succumbed, but up until recently, if it wasn't for ambulating her, she wouldn't have been eligible for transplant because mm-hmm. she would have been lying on the bed immobile for more than seven days. So so there was always that catch-22 there that you mm-hmm. couldn't transplant them, but no one was really ambulating them, and then you had to hope they got better before there was a problem. What this idea here of rehabbing patients on ECMO allows you to do is it gives you a whole new pathway to proceed. Mm-hmm. And have all the patients on ECMO had airways as well or on, and been on ventilators? Or do, do you extubate some people on ECMO? Or? 
So of the, so kids, um, I say, right. So what we've done there is there's uh, I know of one other center that actually is taking a little different approach. They're mm-hmm. taking an approach of extubating an ECMO, removing the airway, but you know waking the patients up. Of course, being you know mobile and physical therapy in bed, but not walking. Uh, we've talked about that, but what we really feel what's important is the physical exercise. We've mm-hmm. had ECMO patients walking to the next building uh, on the weekends down to the, one of the children's hospital lobby, which isn't really used much on the weekends. Obviously, we're looking for making sure it's, you know, it's a place that there's not a lot of public traffic. But um, walking distances, I mean, quite some distances. But by doing that, the fear, the worry that we have, and it may be unfounded, is that we know that the lifeline is at cannula, and something could happen. Mm-hmm. And the thought of not having a direct access to the airway just makes me and our team nervous. So we have um, universally so far uh, placed a trach in these patients. Most of them can ambulate on trach collar. There's a few that do require a mild ventilatory support, some press support, just more for their comfort while, while walking. Uh, so with, with any program like this, I imagine most people are familiar with a fair amount of barriers. Uh, and I wonder what type of barriers uh, your team uh, encountered and, and what has led to your success? So the, it's interesting you ask that, and that, that's exactly what, what amazes me more than anything about, else about this program is there haven't been any. From the first discussion of the first patient, we talked about it and did it the next day or the next morning. But in the situations that we started doing this, the first few patients, in everyone's mindset, the transplant team, the ICU team, the docs, the nurses, the parents, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that there was no chance for survival without lung transplant, and that this offered the best route to that end. So there really weren't hurdles. We did it as a multidisciplinary approach. We have, obviously, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, ECMO specialists, perfusions, physical therapists, all bought in. And not a single person didn't buy in. Because if there was one individual in any discipline who opposed this, he or she could have sabotaged the program and stopped it. Yeah. It would only have taken one individual to, to do something. We've put in, even from the first patient, although we, our safety checks are much more comprehensive than they were on the first patient, very clear checks of what has to happen. PRN ambulation is absolutely forbidden. It's always scheduled. It's scheduled at a time that you know that you have all the personnel there. We worry that if it's just someone makes a decision to go for a walk, you know, staff obviously, that they may not have at that moment checked for all the safety mechanisms and the personnel. So it's scheduled, it's twice a day, on, in general it's twice a day, set times that you have your physician provider team there, your ECMO specialist team there, nursing there, and physical therapy. And despite the usual check of emergency equipment and all the other things that you would be obvious. The last check is, does everyone agree that this is a good idea at this time? And if anybody says no, patient, family, nurse, doc, it doesn't happen. And in all of our ambulations, there have been a few times where someone has said no because there's another emergency and they say, let's regroup in an hour. But that's just looking at safety of the unit. But in terms of that event, one day, one patient for one day said he was too tired and and needed to to rest. And we, we, you know, of course, respected that. But in all these other patients, every other day, they're up and going. And we've had no complications. Yeah. I guess, you know, in some regards, perhaps what made it a little bit more barrier-free is their sense of urgency and that there really is no 
other options either that we do this and the person will get to transplantation or or they will they will succumb to the disease right exactly and, and so our first young woman that was exactly it there was no doubt looking at this 16 year old in bed it was either do something that we've never done before and carried serious dangers and risks or in 72 hours more likely than not withdraw support mm-hmm. so even though it truly we all thought it was a crazy idea it made sense and we got the right people to gather and just did it. Obviously it was a very thorough discussion with the family and they had very short time to make a decision that we should try it. And in the end, of course, it was a great decision. Other plans for expansion within the pediatric world or your institution? Well, I think the the real next steps are going to be to, uh, as I mentioned before, consider such an approach in our bridge to recovery patients and also in that situation, so it's because of the lower age limit on our lung transplant program, will also allow us to get a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do you know, the same things we've done with every other patient, be very careful in our decision process to make sure it's the right patient, the right family, the right situation. And then it's risks and benefits. You know, would we do this to a patient that we would think should have a very short ECMO run that would be uncomplicated? I don't know. If you guess going in that you see an un, totally uneventful, smooth, seven-day run, do you buy the risk? I don't know. But what I think you have to start buying the risk is those patients that you see are going to be on ECMO for quite some time or have already been on some time, and you know that you need to rehab those muscles. Uh, We know from the adult ARDS data, well-reported, that when you look at adult ARDS survivors, non-ECMO, just ventilated ARDS survivors, that a year out, only 50% return to work. And the most common reason by far for lack of returning to original occupation was neuromuscular and not pulmonary. So where that line is of how many days would we decide the risk-benefit ratio starts swinging, I don't know. That's something we're going to have to learn. Your patients are back to swimming, so right, <laughs> pretty <laughs> remarkable. Pretty <laughs> remarkable. Great. Other topics that you wanted to cover? I mean, yeah, the only other the other point I should come back and just mention, just because you asked earlier about extubating. So, for some of our cardiac patients who are on cardiac support, some of those patients have been extubated, but those situations are much similar to being on a VAD. So, so we've extubated that. You know, what's the mindset difference? different group of providers, different unit, different group of patients, different expectations on the VADs. You're often expecting to be on mechanical support for weeks and many, many months. So in that situation, you're often, you really want to have the airway out. You don't want to trach because you clearly don't want to trach on top of what will become a fresh sternotomy. You know, you can say the same thing about the lung transplants. It's just, you know, the risk-benefit ratios just seem to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That's been great. Uh, I really appreciate your time and um, certainly learned a lot. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Progressive mobility of the, the patients on ECMO? Is that- right. So, so the biggest change that, that we've had in our ICU, uh, we are now considering and talking about uh, walking our adolescents, our larger size patients, especially those who are cooperative with endotracheal tubes. We are keeping our patients in general more awake and learning that if you can keep them more awake and get through that period of delirium, they actually do better and you can be more cooperative. But the real area of focus, is, as you just asked, in our ICU has actually been ECMO. We've now walked, I think it's we're up to 13 ECMO patients, all uh, older pediatric patients and young adults, and it's been quite successful. So this program started about 
three and a half, almost four years ago now, where we had a young woman, a 16-year-old, with end-stage cystic fibrosis who had been on the ventilator at another institution for about four days, and then was transferred to us for a lung transplant evaluation. Duke is a very aggressive and big one of the largest in the country, lung transplant programs, but they're pretty strict on a criteria that if you're on a ventilator, you must be ambulatory or at least actively involved in physical rehabilitation within seven days or they will not transplant because of the published data that the risk of mortality is about 50% of those patients who are ventilated and immobile pre-transplant. So we had this young woman in our in, uh, transplant team suggested, and, and to this day I don't know whether Dave Zoss, who's director of our transplant program, did it seriously or, or not, but challenged us to put her on ECMO and walk her on ECMO. And after we all said that was the most insane thing we've ever heard, we did it <laughs> with informed consent of the family, of mm. course. And this young woman was cannulated for venovenous ECMO uh, through a double lumen IJ uh, cannula. Uh, we secured the airway through tracheostomy just to have a secure airway. I woke her up and walked her. And she went on to be transplanted and discharged. And so now uh, we've had a series of 13 similar patients who we've had uh, ambulatory on ECMO, um, all successful to transplant and discharge. Some of the patients are obviously pretty recently transplanted and discharged, so we don't have uh, reliable long-term outcome data, but we're 100% um, to discharge. Mm. And it really has revolutionized the whole mindset of ECMO management and ventilator management because if you can walk an ECMO patient, why can't you have a ventilated patient be awake and cooperative, obviously, especially the older children and adolescents. So it's just that mindset of what you can do has changed the culture of our entire critical care program. That's interesting. So the, the real impetus was the criteria for transplantation, is it? Right, yeah. and so far, so all the third—I believe it's thirteen—that uh, we've trans, that we've walked in ECMO have all been pre-transplant. So the question that came up after we had done about eight or nine bridge to transplant ECMO. So the first eight or nine of our patients were patients that were cannulated with end-stage lung disease with the intent of transplantation. All of them had uh, cystic fibrosis or other chronic lung conditions. We were faced with a sixteen-year-old teenager young woman who had severe ARDS of unclear infectious etiology and after a month on ECMO she uh, was no better and probably was worse. And on a CT scan um, had minimal to no lung. So she was the first patient and the question we had asked all along is can you wake up and walk an ARDS patient on ECMO because of the intrinsic differences of all the other patients had with chronic lung disease had, sad but true, grown accustomed just through their life of living and walking being dyspneic. Mm -hmm. It was just uh, their brain, their mind knew that they weren't suffocating, they were tachypneic, they had struggled to breathe, but they were breathing. When you have someone who was normal with healthy lungs her entire life, as soon as we woke her up, the anxiety, uh, the dyspnea, the, the air hunger that she sensed, although she was clearly well ventilated on ECMO in terms of gas exchange, was tremendous. But it took about a little over a week to really, it comes down to just basic TLC, nursing care, family care, talking to her, convincing this young woman that she was okay. I mean, big sense, ECMO okay, but, but could breathe and, 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 and get through that panic, anxiety, that she was able to ambulate, uh, rehabbed after lying in bed for a month, basically not moving. And she went on to get her transplant, go home, and she's back to being a competitive swimmer. So, wow. pretty impressive. Yeah. 
you know, the next steps are to do the same process to ambulate these patients who are not bridged to transplants, who are bridged to recovery. But we hadn't done that yet simply because we weren't sure about the tachypnea, the, the air hunger, the fear. But having done it in, in a patient, we, we had no choice. We, we had to try it because the alternative on, on the end mm-hmm. I just described was a withdrawal of support. Now that we've, we've learned and we've figured out how to do this, and this was pretty recent, just you know, uh, six months ago, uh, the next appropriate candidate who's an ECMO to bridge to recovery, who is an older patient, older pediatric patient, um, I believe we will go down the same path. Mm-hmm. Most of our patients recently have been younger children. What type of age ranges? So because we've been limiting this to the post-transplant population, our center only does adolescents and adults. So we're going down to the youngest that we can transplant is 14. I do know off of our experience, having talked to other centers and other people around the country, that there are other centers that have now woken up in, I don't know how much I've ambulated, but at least standing at bedsides and, and physically rehabbing. I believe the youngest I've heard is eight years. And I don't see any reason why you can't go down to whatever age you feel. And it depends on the child and the development of the child, sure. uh, that the child would be cooperative because, of course, one error, one inadvertent decannulation can greatly not only, of course, hurt that patient, but damage a program. Forgive me if it's, it's, just, it's just not my, my world. Late or non-recovering ARDS, is that an unusual uh, indication for transplantation, or is that...? It's rare, but uh, there's some. You know, it, this situation, you know, I have we faced this situation where we have had unfortunate patients who could not survive ECMO or sorry, did not recover lungs and eventually succumbed, absolutely. The difference is, you know, years passed. Once you got out four weeks, you know, the, the mindset was wait longer, go six weeks. But your risk of complications really starts rising, infectious complications, bleeding complications. And often, unfortunately, it was a devastating complication. So in this situation, it was really trying to find that right time frame where the team was convinced that recovery uh, of this young woman's lungs was highly unlikely to almost certainly not going to happen but prior to the point that we had an irrecoverable complication so there is some i think we're going to see it more and more honestly yeah. i think i think this situation is probably going to happen more and more you know those for example this young woman ally if she didn't go to transplant she probably would have succumbed but up until recently if it wasn't for ambulating her she wouldn't have been eligible for transplant because mm-hmm. she would have been lying on the bed immobile for more than seven days so so there was always that catch-22 there that you mm-hmm. couldn't transplant them but no one was really ambulating them and then you had to hope they got better before there was a problem what this idea here of rehabbing patients on ECMO allows you to do is it gives you a whole new pathway to proceed mm-hmm. And have all the patients on ECMO had airways as well or on, and been on ventilators? Or do, do you actually some people on ECMO? Or, so, uh, the, so, um, right. so what we've done, there is, there's uh, I know of one other center that actually is taking a little different approach. They're mm-hmm. taking an approach of extubating on ECMO, removing the airway, but you know, waking the patients up, of course, being you know, mobile in physical therapy in bed, but not walking. Uh, we've talked about that, but what we really feel what's important is the physical exercise. We've mm-hmm. had ECMO patients walking to the next building uh, on the weekends down to the, one of the children's hospital lobby, which isn't really used much on the weekends. Obviously, we're looking for making sure it's, you know, it's a place that there's not a lot of public traffic. But um, walking distances, I mean, quite some distances. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, the fear, the worry that we have, and it may be unfounded, is that we know that the lifeline is that cannula. 
and something could happen, mm -hmm. and the thought of not having a direct access to the airway just makes me and our team nervous. So we have um, universally so far uh, placed a trach in these patients. Most of them can ambulate on trach collar. There's a few that do require a mild ventilatory support, compressed support, just more for their comfort while walking. Uh, so with any program like this, I imagine most people are familiar with a fair amount of barriers. Uh, and I wonder what type of barriers uh, your team uh, encountered and, and what has led to your success? So the, it's interesting you ask that. And that's exactly what, what amazes me more than anything about, else about this program is there haven't been any. From the first discussion of the first patient, we talked about it and did it the next day or the next morning. But in the situations that we started doing this, the first few patients, in everyone's mindset, the transplant team, the ICU team, the docs, the nurses, the parents, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that there was no chance for survival without lung transplant and that this offered the best route to that end. So there really weren't hurdles. We did it as a multidisciplinary approach. We have obviously physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, ECMO specialists, perfusions, physical therapists all bought in and not a single person didn't buy in because if there was one individual in any discipline who opposed this, he or she could have sabotaged the program and stopped it. Yeah. It would only have taken one individual to, to do something. We've put in, even from the first patient, although our safety checks are much more comprehensive than they were on the first patient, very clear checks of what has to happen. PRN ambulation is absolutely forbidden. It's always scheduled. It's scheduled at a time that you know that you have all the personnel there. We worry that if it's just someone makes a decision to go for a walk, you know, staff obviously, that they may not have at that moment checked for all the safety mechanisms and the personnel. So it's scheduled, it's twice a day, on, in general it's twice a day, <coughs> set times that you have your physician provider team there, your ECMO specialist team there, nursing there, and physical therapy. And despite the usual check of emergency equipment and all the other things that you would be obvious, the last check is, does everyone agree that this is a good idea at this time? And if anybody says no, patient, family, nurse, doc, it doesn't happen. And in all of our ambulations, there have been a few times where someone has said no because there's another emergency and they say, let's regroup in an hour. But that's just looking at safety of the unit. But in terms of that event, one day... One patient for one day said he was too tired and, and needed to, to rest. And we, we you know, of course, respected that. But in all these other patients, every other day, they're up and going. And we've had no complications. Yeah. I guess, you know, in some regards, perhaps what made it a little bit more barrier-free is their sense of urgency and that there really is no other options either that we do this and the person will get to transplantation or, or they, will, they will succumb to their disease. Right, exactly. And, and so a first young woman, that was exactly it. There was no doubt looking at this 16-year-old in bed. It was either do something that we've never done before and carried serious dangers and risks or in 72 hours more likely than not withdraw support. Mm -hmm. So even though it, truly we all thought it was a crazy idea, it made sense, and we got the right people to gather and just did it. Obviously, it was a very thorough discussion with the family, and they had very short time to make a decision that we should try it. And in the end, of course, it was a great decision. Other plans for expansion within 
the pediatric world or your institution? Well, I think the, the real next steps are going to be to, uh, as I mentioned before, consider such an approach in our bridge to recovery patients. And also in that situation, so it's because of the lower age limit on our lung transplant program, will also allow us to get a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do you know, the same things we've done with every other patient, be very careful in our decision process to make sure it's the right patient, the right family, the right situation. And then it's risks and benefits. You know, would we do this to a patient that we would think should have a very short ECMO run that would be uncomplicated? I don't know. If you guess going in that you see an un, totally uneventful, smooth seven-day run, do you buy the risk? I don't know. But what I think you have to start buying the risk is those patients that you see are going to be on ECMO for quite some time or have already been on some time, and you know that you need to rehab those muscles. Uh, we know from the adult ARDS data, well reported, that when you look at adult ARDS survivors, non-ECMO, just ventilated ARDS survivors, that a year out, only 50% return to work. And the most common reason by far for lack of returning to original occupation was neuromuscular and not pulmonary. So where that line is of how many days would we decide the risk-benefit ratio starts swinging, I don't know. That's something we're going to have to learn. Your patients are back to swimming, so... (laughs) Right. Pretty remarkable. (laughs) Pretty remarkable. Great. Other topics that you wanted to cover? I mean, the only other other point I should come back and just mention, just because you asked earlier about extubating, so for some of our cardiac patients who are on cardiac support, some of those patients have been extubated, but those situations are much similar to being on a VAD. So, so we've extubated that. You know, what's the mindset difference? Different group of providers, different unit, different group of patients, different expectations on the VADs. You're often expecting to be on mechanical support for weeks and many, many months. So in that situation... You're often, you really want to have the airway out. You don't want to trach because you clearly don't want to trach on top of what will become a fresh sternotomy. You know, you can say the same thing about the lung transplants. It's just, you know, the risk-benefit ratios just seem to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That's been great. Uh, I really appreciate your time and um, certainly learned a lot. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress. To be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.